Welcome. Welcome to the LSE, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to greet you at this event. My name is Craig Calhoun, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. But most of you know that, and it's a pleasure to welcome our students, some of our members of the teaching staff, as well as members of the general public. And it's a great honor for me to welcome Mayor Julian Castro to the LSE today. As I'm sure you're all aware, Julian Castro is the mayor of San Antonio, the seventh largest city in the United States. That last part you probably weren't all aware of, but San Antonio is emerging as one of the major cities of the entire country, one of the fastest growing cities. Mayor Castro was co-chair of the Obama 2012 campaign. That actually would have been an easier campaign, I'd like to say here. Obama was winning by a landslide, um, unfortunately among people who can't vote um, in the United States, but we're glad um, nonetheless. Uh, and Mayor Castro gave the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention, which some of you will remember from television. He has been actively engaged in community service for a long time. Actually, when you're as old as I am, you find it impossible to believe that anyone who's 39 has been engaged in anything for a long time. But um, in 2005, he founded the law offices of Julian Castro, uh, a civil litigation practice. He has served on the board of the Family Services Association, the Clear Channel San Antonio Advisory Board, and the San Antonio National Bank Advisory Board. In addition to this, Mayor Castro has taught at the University of Texas, at San Antonio, Trinity University, and St. Mary's University. His speech this afternoon will focus on the very topical issue of U.S. leadership in the 21st century. For those of you in the audience who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSEUS. As usual after the lecture, there will be the chance for some questions. Questions for the mayor have been submitted in advance and I will um, via Twitter, and I will pick a few of these. But before that, may I ask you to join me in welcoming Mayor Castro to the LSE to deliver his lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Calhoun. First of all, I want to extend uh, a, uh, a deep thank you, Texas thank you, uh, to you and to uh, the London School of Economics for having me here today, as well as the San Antonio delegation of business leaders who are here to put San Antonio on the radar screen. Uh, I also uh, want to acknowledge uh, some students, I think, that we have from San Antonio who are far away from home, but hopefully they feel a little bit more at home. Uh, raise your hand if you're from San Antonio. There you go. You know, I, I'm relieved that they're here because I need folks who understand that when I say go Spurs go, I'm talking about the <laughs> San Antonio Spurs. I, uh, I also, uh, of course, want to uh, thank all of you and uh, thank Londoners. Uh, for doing a great job this past summer with the Olympics. It was fantastic to watch a city pull off the Olympics the way that London did. Something to be very proud of and something I know that uh, Mayor Johnson has gotten a lot of kudos for and very well deserved. Uh, and congratulations to that. Of course, for generations, uh, through war and peace, uh, through boom times and through recessions, uh, 
the United States and the United Kingdom have had what has been called a very special relationship and one that continues today. And today, both nations are quite well positioned to ensure that this 21st century is a prosperous century, not only for them, but also for peoples all over the world. There used to be an ad that appeared on television in the late 1980s. Now, I'm 38 years old, so I have some sort of memory to the late 1980s. And the commercial, I believe, was an Apple commercial. The setting for the commercial was a classroom, not unlike this, with a professor at the front of it. And at the end of the commercial, he says to his students, ladies and gentlemen, what an exciting time to be alive. And looking at the students here and being in this city of the world, this city of London, I can't help but think what an exciting time to be alive. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio is now the seventh largest city in the United States. It's the second largest city in the state of Texas. Uh, it is the fifth fastest growing big city in Texas. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to speak at the Democratic National Convention and for the first time to tell a little bit about my upbringing, the story of my grandmother who came to San Antonio when she was a young girl and ended up dropping out in elementary school in about the fourth grade uh, and, ending, uh, and ended up working her life as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter uh, so that she could support her only child, which was my mother. My mother was able to get a high school education and be the first in her family to go to college and then go on and get her master's degree and make sure that my brother, Joaquin, and I could graduate from high school and then go to college and then go to law school and reach our dreams. Both of us are attorneys and we're both elected officials. He just got elected to Congress in the United States. I know. Thank you very much. I know, that, uh, I know that to some folks that might sound like a nightmare, politician and lawyer, but for us, serving our community and practicing law was truly what we wanted to do, and we were able to reach our American dream. And as we look at the world out there in the 21st century, it's clear that uh, we live in a world that is changing at a faster rate than ever before that the divisions that have separated people century after century, divisions of nationality, of religion, of race, of class, of sexual orientation, that those divisions are crumbling at a faster rate than at any time in human history. We live in a world where it's literally easier to communicate with folks half a world away today and cheaper than it was to communicate with someone 500 miles away 50 years ago. In fact, just a few minutes ago, I read some of the tweets that some of y'all had sent out about this very lecture. We live in a world where people are more interconnected than they ever have been before and a world where, simply put, more and more, change is the status quo. 
those nations that thrive in this 21st century will be nations that forge a certain blueprint for success that I'm convinced the United States and the United Kingdom have down well. The first of those, the first part of that blueprint, of course, is the furtherance of democracy and of freedom, ensuring that people are able to achieve their dreams, to pursue their aspirations, that a free marketplace of ideas is established that allows for freedom of expression. The second of those is that free markets are cultivated so that people can pursue entrepreneurial endeavors. Free markets tend to reward hard work and lead to success. The third of those is those communities that embrace change, innovation, that welcome it, that seek it, and to reward those who lead it. And the fourth is those communities that create brain power through opportunity. And it's that fourth ingredient to the blueprint, that fourth element of creating brain power that I wanted to focus on today because of its significance to the world that we live in now and because I believe, I'm convinced, that San Antonio is setting itself as a model city for the rest of the world to follow. Now, I have to say that San Antonio hasn't always been thought of in the same terms as San Francisco or cities like New York or Los Angeles. But San Antonio is a city on the rise, making the right investments in brain power so that we can succeed in the 21st century. In the West, we have benefited from cultivating the expansion of knowledge through the centuries. Think about it. It was in the U US and the UK where public schools were open to everyone, where universities were established to provide higher education to a large portion of the population. In the United States, over the years, more and more groups were able to attend universities to pursue higher knowledge. Access to the acquisition of knowledge was enlarged. That's an element that the East is also investing in. Today, if you look at what China's doing, their goal is to have 200 million college graduates by the year 2020. And by that year, 2020, to ensure almost universal pre-K education. In the United Arab Emirates, for instance, by some estimates, almost a third of their budget on domestic spending is spent on education. And the list goes on and on from India to Brazil, the BRIC countries in general, who recognize that in this 21st century global economy, that brain power truly is the new currency of success, where economic power used to be determined by mass production and brawn. Today, economic power is determined by brains. 
And that's a great thing for those communities that are prepared for that future. In San Antonio, we're seeking to be a model city for that preparation. Just a couple of weeks ago, on November 6th, as the nation, many of them, although not all, celebrated a victory by President Obama, we celebrated the passage of something called Pre-K for SA. Pre-K for SA was an initiative to significantly expand pre-K education for students in San Antonio, four years old, so that disadvantaged youths who are not receiving a great early childhood education could do so. We found that the best way to ensure success is to ensure that no one ever gets behind in the first place. Two years before that, we started something called Cafe College. Cafe College is a one-stop resource center for students getting financial aid and admissions advice, as well as college preparation uh, courses. Because we found that the ratio of students to counselors was 420 students to one counselor in our area high schools. So that this idea that one would get this prudent, sagacious advice from a high school counselor about their future just wasn't happening. And that as a city, as a community, we could fill that gap. We also have aligned the biggest urban districts in our city to pursue a goal of making 85% at least of our students college ready by the time they finish high school. Because we found that too many of our young people, if they finish high school and go on to college, find themselves stuck in remedial courses and are never able to actually complete college. All of this emanates from a very clear vision that we have in San Antonio, forged by 5,000 San Antonians in a process called SA 2020. SA 2020 was kicked off on September 25, 2010, with one question. What kind of city do we want to be on September 25, 2020? The community set forth numeric goals to achieve in 11 different issue areas and visions to achieve each of those goals. The number one issue that came out of our citizenry was the need to improve educational achievement in our city. And the vision was this, that San Antonio would orchestrate the greatest turnaround in education that any city has seen within a decade. And we're well on our way to doing that. We believe that by making these investments, by collaborating with our school districts, by challenging the public out there, the parents, to ensure that they're good shepherds of their child's education, challenging teachers to go the extra mile for their students, challenging students themselves to take more seriously the opportunity they ha that they have in front of them as students, and challenging local elected officials to do things that sometimes put their political capital on the line, but make sense for the future of our young people. That's what we're doing in San Antonio to try and be a model city for brain power in the 21st century. And you might wonder, well, how does that distinguish San Antonio from any other community? 
reason that I feel San Antonio is unique is that San Antonio, in very many ways, is a look at the Texas and the America of tomorrow. You see, the story that I shared about my grandmother, my grandmother came from Mexico, northern Mexico, and she entered the United States in 1922. She was an orphan, and she was about six years old. And her story is a very common story. The fact is that today, San Antonio is a 63% Hispanic city, the largest city in the United States that is majority Hispanic. That means that if we can get it right in a city like San Antonio, it bodes well for getting it right in America and understanding how to get it right as, as countries and as communities like London and others, communities that are cosmopolitan, that are diverse, must meet the challenge of succeeding in a 21st century global economy that has even greater demands and doesn't slow down just because there are differences among us. We believe that San Antonio can provide a great model for those cities. We also know that the inverse of that is that if we don't do what we must, if we don't make those investments and succeed especially in bringing along non-traditional populations that have not prospered as well in the past, that instead of having higher graduation rates, instead of having a more well-educated workforce in the future, instead of being able to support the kinds of companies that we've brought along on this delegation, companies like Rackspace Hosting and Valero Energy and Tesoro, that instead communities will fall backward. They will be less and less competitive in the 21st century global economy. We know that today in the United States, it's estimated that more than 60% of the jobs require something more than a high school diploma. And yet, in a city like San Antonio, the dropout rate ranges from, if you believe the official state numbers, about 15%. And if you believe some of the nonprofits that do work in this area, it's as high as 40%. Think about that for a second. And the wide gulf that exists between where we are and where we want to be. I'm excited to be here today because each and every one of us has a story. And I know that this path of focusing on brain power and investing in it and creating opportunities for those who haven't always had those opportunities in front of them. I know that that's the right path as mayor of the city, for sure, but I also know that that's the right path because I've lived it. Because I've seen what can happen when you take someone from one of those neighborhoods that you wouldn't necessarily expect success from, and you give them a brilliant opportunity. You can imagine that I never believed or never thought that when I was 17 years old and got on a plane to Stanford 20 years ago now that I would be speaking in London at the School of Economics. But I've had the opportunity to see my community make investments in itself that have mattered in my life and will matter to so many other families in the future. And I believe that the challenge for the United States today 
and for the United Kingdom as well, is to do what we have always done, to collaborate, to continue to pursue jointly investments not only in the armaments of the 21st century, but also in knowledge building in the 21st century. I'm convinced that that can make all the difference in the world. And I wanted to come here today and to challenge you as young people with your future far in front of you to be champions for knowledge building around the world, to use what you have experienced in your own lives and the knowledge that you've gained here to champion that for others and to extend the hand of opportunity that will make a difference to so many folks around the world. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Happily for all of us, Mayor Castro not only gave us a great speech, but he's willing to take questions from all of you as well as those who came in for the future. So let me call a few people. Please say who you are and wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, hello. Uh, welcome to London. I'm, I'm a Londoner. Um, I'm also a BBC political analyst and uh, a political advisor to the mayor of Florence who is running for the primaries. The question for you is related to Obama. Um, I was the, uh, the US Embassy for the election night and before that I was LAC for the America Votes event. Uh, if Europeans could have voted, they would have voted 75% for Obama. How did you feel in Texas? What was the question about Texas? <laughs> how how did he feel in Texas? How, do, how would he fare in Texas? How, in Europe, Obama would have, uh, you know, would have scored 75% of the vote. I mean, it was actually something coming out of LAC. How did he feel supporting Obama and leaving oh, the election in Texas? Sorry about I can that. actually yeah. add, even Berlusconi supporters at U.S. Embassy were voting for Obama. How did he feel in Texas? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I guess the question is, how did I feel in Texas supporting in President Texas. No, I, well, I mean, I think that, that uh, President Obama certainly has a good amount of support in Texas. Of course, he did not win Texas either in 2008 or 2012, but uh, he also does have a strong base of support there, particularly in the, the big urban centers like San Antonio, Austin, Houston, Dallas, uh, El Paso, uh, Fort Worth, and others. Texas is very interesting because... Of course, it's a Republican state. The state has 29 statewide offices, and the count between Republicans and Democrats is 29 to 0, all Republican. However, that's changing, and I'm convinced that within the next six to eight years that it will be a swing state or a Democratic state, uh, basically for three reasons. The first is the growth of the Hispanic community. It's growing tremendously. In the last census, Hispanics accounted for 65% of the growth. Secondly, uh, there have been a tremendous number of, of people moving in from California, Arizona, uh, Louisiana, Florida, Colorado, other states, because to its credit, Texas has done very well compared to other places during these last few years of a downturn. So there's been a net in-migration of people seeking job opportunities that generally have brought a bit more of a moderate perspective to them. I say that as a native Texan who was born in Texas and grew up there. And then thirdly, uh, because the Republican Party, even though it still controls both houses of the legislature and, of course, the governor's office, has moved consider considerably more to the right in the last few years. 
And it's beginning to lose, I think, some of the business community that undergirded the party. Um, because it seems to be more and more motivated by ideology instead of pragmatism. And once that happens, you begin to lose the middle, and particularly business Republicans. Those three dynamics are adding up to a Texas that is changing. And I think by the election of 2020, presidential election, that uh, on that election night, that you may well see the map and see a blue Texas instead of a red one. <laughs> okay. We've got Amanda blue shirt up there, and then the blue shirt down here next. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And um, one thing I want to know is cities are really seen as a, um, the way that American c can combat uh, global warming and become a more green, uh, depend more on green energy. How is uh, mayor of uh, San Antonio? Are you really is are you trying to direct uh, your city to become a uh, more sustainable uh, city? Yeah, thanks a lot for the question. Um, San Antonio owns CPS Energy, which is the largest municipal utility in the country that delivers both electric and gas uh, service to customers. It has, I believe, over 800,000 customers. And one of the strategies that we've pursued is what we call a new energy economy strategy. So a couple of years back, a few years back, uh, the utility set a goal that 20 percent uh, of its uh, capacity would be renewable energy. At that time, it was mostly wind energy. It still is mostly wind, but we've accelerated that investment over these last couple of years. Uh, what's made our experience unique, though, is that we've linked our goal, that 20 percent goal, to actually getting jobs into the city of San Antonio. So we've said, for instance, that if we're going to do a power purchase agreement for solar energy, and a few months ago we entered into a 400 megawatt power purchase agreement, then we're also going to ask those companies to invest jobs in the city. So the company that got that contract is going to build uh, a facility and employ, up to, well, it and its suppliers are going to employ 805 people in San Antonio. Uh, you're going to have manufacturing, assembly, and engineering jobs that are part of that. Uh, we feel like that's the answer to the question of um, how do you both be environmentally responsible and also uh, engage in job creation. And we believe that San Antonio has found that. San Antonio has also benefited from uh, the prominence of natural gas. We have something called the Eagleford Shale that's in San Antonio's backyard just south of the city. Uh, and uh, tons of jobs, probably a couple of thousand jobs now, can be ascribed to the natural gas play that's happening in South Texas. Okay. Thank you. Uh, John Newham. Uh, Mr. Mayor, can you envisage how in the 21st century the U.S. leadership is going to respond to circumstances in which other countries are going to become increasingly more important, like, for example, um, India and China? In simple terms, by the end of the century, the U.S. is going to be relatively less significant perhaps than now, just as Britain found itself in the last century. Thank you. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, first, uh, I would say that, uh, that the United States, I think, under President Obama's leadership, is making some of the right investments that we need to make in order to be strong in the 21st century. And as I said uh, in my speech, I truly believe that the linchpin of that is creating knowledge 
that to the extent that we create knowledge, um, that is what the 21st century global economy is revolving around. And in that way, the United States can remain strong for quite a while. Of course, militarily, the United States is still by far uh, the most powerful nation in the world. Uh, the population of the United States is still growing. Uh, that's also, I believe, why inside the United States this debate about immigration is not a two-dimensional debate because um, as European countries have seen, you actually need to produce a workforce to replace folks who are leaving the workforce. And the fact is that these immigrant communities uh, are younger. Uh, they, they promise an infusion of employees that we need. So I think that if you have smart immigration policy, that if you harness knowledge in your nation, like the United States, I believe, has been doing and will do under the president's leadership, uh, and of course, if you're a strong uh, military nation, that uh, you can remain very successful in the 21st century. <laughs> Let me take this moment to ask you one of the questions that came in by email and Twitter. This is from Jose Alejandro Flores, who asks about the expanding Latino population in the U.S., and how do you foresee this population contributing to domestic uh, and international economies and growth in the U.S.? The thing about the Latino population, the Hispanic population in, in the United States, is that oftentimes the perception is that this is a very new community. And there are a significant number of new immigrants who are Latino. But folks will also know uh, that it's also a community that has been there for generations in states like Texas, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. That entire area, of course, was once part of Mexico. And so you have families that have been there for many generations uh, and have already been contributing significantly to the economy of the United States. Uh, I see the future of the nation uh, improved by a strengthening Hispanic community. That's why it's so important that we get those graduation numbers up for Hispanics, get college uh, matriculation and completion rates up so that they can also populate jobs in 21st century industries. And if we can do that, then Hispanics can play a great role in moving the nation forward. Uh, in fact, if you think about it, uh, the, the pattern of our established nations is that our workforce is growing older. People are retiring. People also are having less children. That's just a fact in more developed nations. And it's these immigrant communities that offer the hope that we can have a strong workforce in the future. And to the extent that they can be well-educated, uh, I think that bodes well for the entire uh, nation, in this case, the United States. Uh, I also think that, of course, in addition to, to a role in the workforce, that Latinos have played a great role in terms of culture. Uh, a more, they're playing a more and more prominent role. Uh, they've played a great role in the military. Uh, and they're going to continue to play all of those roles in the future, just much more prominently. Obviously, they played a big role in the electoral politics of 2012. Indeed. In the fourth row in the center, it's dark hair. Yeah, you, but wait for them. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Andrew Lewis from Seattle, Washington. Uh, Louise Fraga says hi, by the way. Uh, I yeah, took his yeah. uh, urban politics class at the University of Washington that I believe you took at um, Stanford. Yeah, I did, yeah. He's a yeah. great guy. I just yeah. text messaged him the other day. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> That's great. Um, so, so my question is, the city of Seattle is having some problems right now around police accountability. We actually had the 
um, Justice Department come in to conduct an investigation and try to uh, work with the, our police department to reform because of problems with um, uh, racial tolerance in our policing practices. And I was wondering, as mayor of an um, exceptionally diverse city, uh, what kind of uh, way do you approach public safety and accountability and try to maintain a, um, a tolerant uh, police force? It's a great question. You know, what's so fascinating about San Antonio is that it's a diverse community. It's also a community that if you were to go back and look at, for instance, the, the, the uh, level of unrest in American cities in the late 1960s, uh, you wouldn't see San Antonio on the list of cities that, you know, that were uh, aflame and, and where you had the same level of rioting and so forth. I say that as the son of uh, a woman, my mother, uh, who was in the Chicano movement, who was in basically the Mexican-American version of the Civil Rights Movement. But generally... People of different backgrounds, um, different perspectives have been able to come together, live together, work together in, in fairly good harmony in San Antonio. And every now and then we've had, like any city, um, spikes in terms of issues with the police, but not in the same measure by any extent of some, some other American cities. And I, we've tried to be proactive about how we address some of these issues. Uh, for instance, just a few years ago, uh, there was a study done, a PERF study it was called, and I can't remember what the acronym stands for now. Uh, I know it started with police, that's the P. Uh, but the city went out and hired uh, a firm that consults to cities about how it could improve its accountability in terms of its police department. And they made 141 recommendations to the city of San Antonio. And we adopted something like 125 of them, of those recommendations, significant recommendations from the most mundane to very, to very meaty ones um, in, a, in an effort to be proactive on those issues. And um, every now and then you get something that flares up, but there has not been the kind of consistent pattern that you see in some other police departments. Uh, and the, the relationship between the police department and its citizens has been, I, I would say, I would venture to say, uh, a lot more positive than you see in some places. We also have a police chief, a guy named uh, Bill McManus, who has been stellar about trying to anticipate those issues and listen to the community and respond appropriately. Uh, under his leadership, I would say, you know, when an officer, for instance, uh, uh, breaks the rules of the department, um, that uh, you know, they get punished if punishment is due, uh, and that hasn't always been the case in the past, but under his leadership, there has been accountability there. And what happens is that you start changing the culture to one that's even more positive and more proactive, and you avoid uh, the bad or poisoned community police relationship that you might see in some other places. So all in all, I've been pleased with with how San Antonio has dealt with these kinds of issues. Great. We've got two upstairs, a woman in a scarf, and right in front of her, a man in a gray shirt. Hi. My name is Deidre Lipskis. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, you say that education and building the brains of America is the most important key to our future success. However, American universities are grossly more expensive than anywhere else in the world. Um, yeah, what do you think about that, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I would like to disagree with you, but I had a loan bill that would probably prove your point right uh, a few years ago. Um, <clears throat> I would say a couple of things that, um, and I know this is an issue that, that uh, folks in the UK are dealing with right now in terms of the affordability of universities, uh, that traditionally the United States, I think, did a, a pretty good job of making public universities affordable for most folks. Um, in places like Texas, since tuition was deregulated a few years ago, that has become less true. Um, private universities in the United States can be fairly expensive, but also there's, there's a fairly robust financial aid system of private grants as well as uh, U.S. government low-interest loans and grants that have made it more affordable. So let me give you my example from my own experience. Uh, the year that my brother and I applied to, uh, to Stanford, we applied to college and we decided to go to Stanford, uh, we were growing up with my mother and my grandmother. My grandmother got a few hundred dollars in the Social Security check every month, and my mother uh, made about $19,000 that year. She made under $20,000, and Stanford cost about twenty-seven dollars or $28,000 each if you included books, tuition, all the stuff I know that you all have to count every semester. Uh, the travel. And so Stanford at that time gave us each about $21,000 basically. And then we took out the rest in loans and I worked in the cafeteria my first year and then I worked again in one of the dorms my third year and my brother worked one year. So I know that's one story also of a higher end university too and oftentimes these higher end universities have more money to give than, than other ones. But you know, the United, in the United States, there has been a significant effort to make education affordable to people, higher education, through keeping tuition relatively low at public universities and at private universities, uh, supplementing what people can afford, what families can afford with low-interest government loans, grants, and then <coughs> private scholarships that the university gives out. Uh, but there's no doubt that it can get better. There's also no doubt that in some ways it's not going in the right direction because it's getting more and more expensive and the deregulation of tuition has made the cost of public universities in some states like Texas unaffordable to more people. I'd like to ask about the, uh, the role of the Latino vote. In, uh, as, as you mentioned, it played a very big role in the uh, 2012 election. I'm curious to know what you think about uh, the impact that a, a Republican Latino candidate, uh, someone like Marco Rubio, could have made in uh, this year's election, and if you can see the Republican Party kind of winning uh, back the uh, Latino vote in some way. Oh, thanks for the question. I, I think it's possible. Um, so as folks will know now, the, uh, in this year, between 71 and 75 percent of the Latino vote went to President Obama. That was a high watermark. Uh, the last time that anybody got above 70 percent was Bill Clinton against Bob Dole in 1996. Uh, and what made it particularly significant was that Latinos are aggregated in states like uh, Nevada, Colorado, Florida, uh, New Mexico that are these swing states. I think that the Republican Party has two, two problems. The first is the tone that everybody talks about. You remember the election, during the election, uh, Mitt Romney talked about self-deportation and 
uh, you know, Chris Kobach from Kansas was one of his advisors, and Jan Brewer uh, was one of his supporters. Pete Wilson was a supporter. Um, but secondly, one that they don't talk about, but one that I think to give more credit to the Latino community is important, is not just the tone of the message, it's the substance of the policies. On Obamacare, for instance, Obamacare is going to help ensure that up to 9 million more Latinos get health care. This is a community that has a very high incidence of diabetes, of hypertension, uh, of obesity, of all of those things that drag on the quality of life, and too many people in that community literally use the emergency room as their primary care physician. So having health insurance is a huge deal in that community. We were just talking about education. So under President Obama, uh, even though you know, the budget was being cut, he actually put more money into Pell Grants. And 150,000 more Latinos in the United States were able to afford college because of that. At the same time, you have uh, Romney and the Republicans talking about either eliminating the Department of Education or whittling it away significantly. My point is that you know, there's a real substance there. There's a policy difference that people are savvy. You know, They're like anybody else. They get it. And I think that that's part of the challenge with the Latino community. I think you can also see that because this was the first year uh, I, that I'm aware of uh, where the Democratic candidate won not just the heavily Mexican-American part of the Latino vote, but also the Cuban-American part of the Latino vote in Florida. That was very significant. To answer your question about these other candidates, or potential candidates, of course, I think that, that it will help to have um, folks like Marco Rubio, who perhaps can, who will, I think, be able to relate more to the story of so many Latinos in the United States. And, you know, he has a bright future. And I wish him very well in what he's doing. Obviously, I have policy disagreements with him. But it's also not going to be enough to just have that face there. It's going to be, have to be that with a change in substance and a change in message. If you have those three things, if you have someone who truly relates to the community, plus they, they have the right tone, and they embrace policies that are substantively better than the ones that the Republicans have been offering the Hispanic community for a while, that's when I think you could have, you could have more traction. I would say that if, if Marco Rubio uh, ran against Jeb Bush and only Hispanics were voting, they would, they'd vote for Jeb Bush. I mean, you know, so people are, people judge these things. They're savvy. They know, like anybody else, how you stand on issues. Okay, I'm going to call the person in the middle up there, but first I'm going to stick in one more question that came in from Twitter. This is from David Landon Cole. What do you think is the biggest challenge for city government in the USA? Um, I think the biggest challenge over the last couple of years has been trying to maintain an excellent level of service, uh, even as revenues have been declining. I mean, governments have been facing this from, from national governments, like the United States and the UK, to statewide governments, to local governments. The biggest challenge is that fundamentally that we need to deliver a certain amount of services, and people expect a certain level of services at the local level. The fascinating thing about being a mayor is that when you're out and about, people judge you, uh, they judge you on whether the street that they drove on has potholes on it or not. You know, they judge you on whether 
when they called code compliance because there was some issue with their neighbor's yard, the grass was too high, or, or if their garbage didn't get picked up when it was supposed to. Uh, you know, they judge you on those things. So they want this basic level of services delivered in an excellent way. And when they don't get it, they have a very ready-made complaint. At the same time, they also, like anybody else, you know, everyone wants to keep taxes low. And because of the downturn in the economy, sales taxes had been down, property taxes were down, uh, revenue from our energy utility for a time was down. So that was the common pattern of governments from from national governments all the way to local governments. And going forward, it's the the question is going to be. How can you be smarter and more efficient in delivering those services on a revenue base that isn't necessarily going to be expanding? In San Antonio, over the last seven years, we've cut the, level, the number of positions by 686 actual positions. So folks talk about shrinking government. Well, that never really happens at the national level. I mean, you know, even under Ronald Reagan, the thing didn't shrink, all right? Uh, the federal government expanded. It just didn't grow as fast as... It had been growing in the past, but at the local level, we actually have shrunk the size of government by eliminating positions and also by contracting with private companies to, to sometimes do some of the work that had been done in the public sector in a reasonable way. Uh, and I believe that uh, particularly during these times that that's going to continue to be maybe the biggest challenge that, that governments face, local governments face. Thanks. Hi, my name is Charles. I'm a student at LSE, and I think on behalf of the student community, I can give you a big welcome to LSE. So, uh, my question's about, uh, partly about Twitter. I saw you using it earlier, and it's, it's obviously a very useful way to relate to voters in, in San Antonio and, uh, and elsewhere. And my question's about how important you think electronic platforms are in the future when you're potentially running for office of... Uh, judging what, what your key issue areas should be in a campaign? Uh, I, I believe that it's becoming more and more important. Its significance in electoral politics is probably less than it would be, let's talk about Twitter specifically, if it were more widely adopted. Twitter is still, it, it, I'm not sure how many followers there are, how many users there are yet, but it's, it's still not a widespread a platform itself or application. I think Facebook is probably more powerful right now. Both of them are very potentially powerful for campaigns in the sense that they get to exactly the crowd that is often hardest to get to. <clears throat> Younger voters, uh, middle-aged voters, people that may not spend a lot of time watching television so they're not going to necessarily catch your ads. They certainly don't read ads in the newspaper if people still advertise in the newspaper. Um, that's not a knock on newspapers. It's just you've seen political advertising mostly go away from that. Um, so as, as the number of users grows for those platforms, um, I think that there's only an upside to that. Candidates that embrace that technology are going to be ones who have an extra edge. Uh, and the thing is, it's so cheap. I mean, it's, it's, I say it's so cheap, it's not free, because if you really want to penetrate that market, it does cost to advertise on Twitter and also on Facebook. But you can do it much more cheaply than traditional sources of advertising. And it's powerful because it's the old uh, Tupperware 
uh, effect, right? It's word of mouth you know, from one friend to another that has a, a powerful impact on, on somebody's likability, um, their, their, their likelihood to get a vote because their friend recommends that person or thinks highly of that, that person. It comes with a, a gloss to it that you won't get just from TV advertising or other types of advertising. And I, I believe that that's only going to get more and more significant in the years to come. I apologize. We're getting close to the end. I'm not going to get to everybody who has a hand up. The woman in the uh, peach coat sweater on the aisle here. Yeah. Mayor, it's an honor to sit in your lecture. My name is Findi. I'm, I'm from in Jakarta, Indonesia. I'm studying diplomacy at LSE. Um, my question to you is, um, if, you're, if you were to be the president of the USA or the, or the vice president in the years to come, um, would you offer a new approach in how you lead better collaboration on bipartisan collaboration? Uh, well, first, I'm never going to be the president or the vice president, so <laughs> I won't answer the question in that vein. But I will say that, um, you know, I was very encouraged after the elections, in the aftermath of the elections, that, uh, that President Obama was very forthright about saying he wanted to work with the other party. And to his credit, Speaker Boehner was also forthright about saying that there were areas where they could work together, particularly on avoiding this so-called fiscal cliff that's coming at the end of the year. Um, let me just offer you sort of my take on it as a local official. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that, that at the local level we can still get things done, that we can accomplish, is because it's a nonpartisan environment. You know, we don't put Democrat or Republican on the ballot when we run. And my colleagues uh, on the city council don't have a party line to toe. So they don't even think about issues in terms of whether somebody is doing this as a Democrat or Republican. They just think about it in terms of, for my area, for my district, and then for the city, is this something that is positive or negative? Is it in the best interest of the people that I represent? Trust me, that, that alleviates a huge amount of the, the contentiousness and the back and forth that you get in a party system. I bring that up just to say that, that there's not just one model in the United States. There's actually a nonpartisan model that is the model that cities, municipalities have embraced. The vast majority of cities are nonpartisan. I don't think that tomorrow that's ever going to happen uh, in the federal government. But I do think that we can take lessons from the structure that's been used in cities and perhaps integrate that at the national level. At the statewide level, one example of that is these bipartisan redistricting commissions uh, that instead of letting Republicans and Democrats fight it out and gerrymander their, their seats, their congressional seats, it's actually said, okay, people from both parties are going to get together the same number in a neutral way and, and draw out what these new congressional districts are going to be. I believe that we ought to follow, follow that model more at the federal government level. And that if we did that, probably uh, the United States Congress could be somewhat more productive than it has been. Last question for the far right corner. That's not a political comment in the balcony. <laughs> and please keep it brief because we're at the end. Mayor Castro, I wanted to thank you for uh, the great lecture. I'm a grad student at Cambridge, originally from the great city of Toronto, Ontario. Um, I wanted to ask you about public service and spe uh, specifically about my generation. Um, over the last two years, I think we saw 
one of the nastiest and most vitriolic campaigns, um, at least of my generation. Um, and I wanted to ask you, as so many young people from, from Stanford or LSE or Cambridge flock to the financial sector, there's still some of us who are interested in public service and want to get into public service, but we're put off by the sheer nastiness and character assassination that, uh, that, sort of, that determines our politics these days. What advice would you give to people like me and my peers who are interested in public service but are put off by politics? I would say that, first of all, I would encourage you that if you have a passion for that, that you should pursue it. Because if people with a passion for doing the right thing don't pursue public service, then that's going to leave it to everybody else <laughs> that has d different motives. I would also say that the vast majority of people in public service that I've met actually are good people who are doing what they think is in the best interest of the people that they represent. Um, and that people often do get caught up in a nasty political process. Uh, and I don't think any of us has sort of the panacea to do away with that. But uh, for those of you all that are considering going into public service, my first piece of advice would be to understand what you believe, what you fundamentally believe and what you want to accomplish by going into public service. The public servants that I have seen get into trouble or have problems are those public servants that go into it, that run for office, that aren't really there because they have something that drives them, something that they want to achieve for other people. And so you have to fundamentally understand what you believe and what you want to get done in public service. And then the second thing is to listen to people. A lot of times, and I started at the age of 26. I got on the city council when I was 26 years old. A lot of times, especially when we're young, you know, the, the old cliche that you think you know everything and you forget to listen to other people. And so I would say listen as much as you talk when you're in public service because you really can learn a lot from other people. And that's especially true when you're just starting out, you know, when you're young. And I still consider myself young. Uh, I hope that I can say that at the age of 38. <laughs> um, and then just my last piece of advice practical advice would be if you want to go into public service in a, in a democratic process, figure out who orbits around the office that you want to run for. You know, what, what are the interest groups? Like when I ran for city council, it was the neighborhood associations. You know, but if you're running for a school board position, it's often the, the PTAs or the teachers unions or uh, if you're running for the legislature, it's a whole bunch of different groups that have an interest in the work that you do uh, and get to know them and network and uh, understand their perspective and develop a platform that you can run on. Mayor Castro, you stressed listening as part of what a politician does. And I have to tell you, if you can listen to Twitter, that there are a number of people saying here that they don't accept this proposition that you're not going to be president or vice president one day. <laughs> <laughs>